Welcome to episode 632 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Joined, as always, by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Yeah, just about. Usually. Mm-hmm. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Okay. It's a listener email show. Our weekly break from the Team Preview podcasts. Do you have any banter before we begin? Uh, I have a... Um, yeah, I, this doesn't count as banter. So if <laughs> okay. you have banter, you can, you can banter. But I... But do you have any banter? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. You go. Not much. Okay, well, it's been a long time since there were actual baseball games going on. So it's also been a long time since our most popular segment... Ben and Sam watch video that no one else can see. And so did you see the Jose Iglesias play today? Mm-mm. Okay. I, I am sending you the Jose Iglesias play. So longtime listeners will recall that Jose Iglesias made a play in August 2013, a diving throw. Josh Fegley was the batter, and it was like a dive slash scoop in one motion Got the runner at first. We watched it. We were impressed. I think we argued about the merits of that scoop as opposed to some other scoop by a first baseman, perhaps. And you were much more impressed by this one. It it, it was much more impressive. Anyway, Iglesias had another scoop today. It's on the right side of the infield, whereas the last one was on the left. So he had to go much farther for this one. And he sort of scooped and sprawled and threw in one motion. And he did not get the runner at first, but still a pretty play. Yeah, I like this one a great deal. I like this one much more than I like the uh, other one. Yeah, this is a nice one. And it's kind of a shame because when the guy doesn't get the out, I, I think the what's the shelf life of a web gem quality play where the out isn't recorded? I feel like even if it's exactly as impressive a play the odds that that play will be remembered by the internet will be much lower yeah yeah you ever think ben i can't i i was telling this to somebody recently so if it was you on this show you can interrupt me (laughs) but you ever think about how somewhere along the line somebody came up with these arbitrary rules for a sport that a small portion of the population is extremely good at and makes tons of money doing it and gets to be famous and feel special. And think of all the sports that weren't invented that you might be the best in the world at and would be just as valid as sports. <laughs> I'm not and sure those sports exist. Unless... There's probably something. I mean, there's some combination of, um, of demands that one could put on a human being that you would be really amazing at. Mm. And if, if 180 years ago people had decided that that was the thing that they were going to prioritize in the world for no real reason, but that was the the collection of activities, you could be that amazing thing. So it's, 
it's really not sometimes we think like that the that uh you you want to be born lucky in this world like you want to be the guy who's born with the good genes or born with the social privilege or born with the whatever but really what you need is for the world to have first shaped itself to your own genes because Mm -hmm. your genes are not important uh your characteristics your temperament is not important it is whether in the 180 years preceding your birth the world shaped itself in preparation of you (laughs) i'm really good at making drumming sounds with my fingers and knuckles my girlfriend has a master's in music and she's very impressed by my ability to make drumming sounds with my Uh fingers and knuckles so if that were a sport i feel like i would probably be among the best in the world anyway my point is that uh that's what it's like to have a web gem that doesn't matter because there's no out made (laughs) a little bit a little bit yeah Yeah. okay Well, well think about think about all well no don't think about that. All right. I like this a great deal. And the thing I like about this a great deal is that it sort of feels like just before the throw comes, it sort of feels like the whole, everybody slows down. Like the pitcher's running and then he kind of gives up. And the second baseman's running and he kind of gives up. And even Iglesias is sprinting, sprinting, sprinting. And then he sort of has to slow to pick it up and he's toppling over and decelerating. And the umpire is very lazily in the background. And, and, Everything is just kind of coming to an end. And then all of a sudden, this thing just shoots out like a potato gun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And by the way, I don't actually want to deprive people of the experience of watching this as we discuss it. So whenever we do this this popular recurring segment, I do post the video in the Facebook group and often in the blog post at BP. So you can go find what we're looking for. That way, it'll be preserved in case the internet forgets about this early March Non-out recorded by Jose Iglesias. Who is the pitcher? It looks like David Price, doesn't it? Does it? No, he's he's right-handed, and and not remotely an athlete. He's he is the least athletic human being (laughs) ever. And this goes to my point about the arbitrariness of who gets rich (laughs) in this world. Look at him! Look at him! He looks like he looks like uh, he looks like the Hound in full armor. He's he's tall. He's got that he's going tall. for him. And sluggish. Yeah. Well, being tall as a pitcher is a good thing. And, and being sluggish is not as bad a thing. Yeah. We'll find out who it is. We'll, we'll look it up. Um, okay, what was the other thing that you were going to say? Uh, Jake Mintz of uh, Cespedes Family Barbecue has given me, has, has hand-delivered to me an email question. Okay. And so I, I promise to answer it. Sure. We got emails from both of the Cespedes authors. We do. Mm-hmm. And I this is only the second time I've ever agreed to answer a question that wasn't actually emailed mm-hmm. to the podcast email address. But I'll do it for Jake. Uh, Jake wants to know what if lineups were uh, operated like snake drafts? <laughs> huh. What would you? Where would you put all your good players? By the way, it must be Alfredo Simon, right? Wow, is Alfredo Simon that tall? Six six. And, uh, probably. I mean, what inning was this? Does it say in the in the gift? Yeah, first, I think. Oh yeah, probably then. Yeah, thirty one, number thirty one. Checks out. Yeah, so snake draft lineups. So. So your number your number one hitter could end up getting the fewest <laughs> plate appearances. Right. 
and or the most. Yeah, and your number nine guy could get the most. And your number nine and number one hitters obviously will never, like, they'll never see each other. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll be like uh, two guys working on on different shifts. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll never cross paths. It'll be like the voice actors in an animated movie. <laughs> they'll be like, what was it like working with Sean Penn? And then they're like, I never met him. Except in Rango. I think in Rango they all they voice acted together for and camaraderie. Sean Penn, Sean Penn wasn't even in Rango. No, Johnny yeah. Depp insisted on having great, the cast together. Great, that was a great movie. <laughs> that is Seriously, that's like a top 15 animated movie of all time. Yeah, it's a, a rare, not terrible movie for Johnny Depp lately. Um, okay, so Snake Draft... So, so the question is, how would it matter? How would it affect lineup but, uh, construction? Not... How would it affect scoring? Oh, uh, how well, different it... would baseball be if baseball were different in that way? No, it, the question is, uh, the first question is, how how would you set your lineup? The second question is, because obviously you'd have to have a ghost runner provision. Uh, the rule that Jake told me had been agreed upon is that uh, you may pinch run with. Um, with anybody who's not in the game uh, if you need a ghost runner. And so for that reason, you'd obviously have to roster a couple of Terrence Gore types, and Terrence Gore types would thus be worth more money. So that's that's good. I like those guys. Yeah. Hmm. And that would have other implications on the rest of the roster, probably. Like you might carry one fewer pitcher. But Is this how they play baseball in Division Three? Is this how Jake's baseball team works? Oh my gosh, Jake's I've <laughs> I've never Jake seen Division I, Three sports. Yeah. Oh, uh, no. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not going to talk about Jake's Division Three pitch career. Okay. I'm not going to go off on that, on that, <laughs> on that in that direction. We're going to keep this on topic. So, do you have thoughts on lineup construction? Boy, it's really a gamble, isn't it? I guess. I guess you'd have to. You'd have to figure that. If you bat five times in a game, you probably have won. Like most of the time, if somebody gets five plate appearances in a game, that team probably wins, right? Like, I, in fact, I can do this. I can do a, a simple play index. Well, that must be average for a leadoff hitter, right? What, 162 times five is 810, but very few players play 162. Home. So, yeah, right. I don't know. That's well, if you're a home team, if you're, if you're like Ichiro or something, you. You probably do that, but then Ichiro has okay. been on good teams. I don't know. Yeah. Are we gonna then say that in fact it's normal that that the default is to assume that you'll turn it over four times and just barely uh, start inching up on the fifth? I'm gonna see. I'm gonna do a play index. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Impromptu players, play index. I'm gonna do find all matching games for plate appearance equals uh, uh, equals five for uh, batting order position first. And I'm not going to bother with home road, although I should, I'm not going to. So plate appearances, five, and we'll do since 2000. And we're going to see how many of those took place in wins for their team. And we're going to see how many took place in losses for their team. So we've got 20,331 took place in wins and we've got 15,314 take place in losses so that's not very compelling anyway (laughs) so let's let's say then that let's put it this way then if you 
certainly if you turn the lineup over five times, then you've won, right? Mm-hmm. If if you're if you're basically leadoff hitter, whichever direction you're going, your leadoff hitter gets six at bats, you've almost certainly already won. So in that case, there's no real benefit to having your better hitter get the extra plate appearance because you've probably won. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, uh, I don't know, where would your pitcher bat? I think you bat, I think you keep your lineup exactly as it is. That's what I think. Yeah, my initial suspicion was that it, it might not matter all that much. I, it might not matter. You might want to have your, if you think that it's good to get your on-base guys in front of your power guys, mm-hmm. then you might you might want to have, like, uh, you might want to sort of clump your power guys, well, like, at, maybe at 3, 4, 5, which doesn't sound all that radical, um, and then you're, I guess really that wouldn't even change anything, but you might want to kind of have on base guys coming both directions, mm-hmm. but otherwise, yeah, I don't think it really matters. I would keep it exactly how it is. This will not change baseball. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, I always yeah. enjoy an answer that involves an impromptu play index, even if it was not definitive in this case. It's a, it's a good good demonstration because you never know with these canned play index segments that you prepare in advance who knows how much time you spent laboring over those but when we can do a a real-time play index that is a real proof of concept could be that like a producer is just feeding these (laughs) play index right could be that sean Sean borman himself himself is putting together a package and just handing me a like a press things he can't even do with play index he's just pretending (laughs) you can do them (laughs) yeah (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, Let's take one from Aaron. I remember when the Nationals signed Max Scherzer, Sam decided he liked the deal under the assumption that the Nationals would be trading a starting pitcher, possibly Steven Strasburg, as a consequence. Now that the Nationals seem content to hold on to their super rotation, would the two of you care to revisit that deal? Um, Well, I like it less Uh for that reason. It's, I guess, in in a sense... Is it fair to say I like it less and rather, instead of just saying that I like their non-move, uh, I don't like their non-move? No, I don't think it is. I think I like it less. I don't really see them having a need for Scherzer this year. And I get that he's uh, a nice replacement for Zimmerman if Zimmerman leaves next year or Fister leaves next year. And so there's benefit uh, going forward. But you know, the safest, uh, the safest assumption is that Scherzer will be good this year. And uh, to me, it feels like a lot of commitment to take on mm-hmm. just to get this year. Uh, to me, it doesn't really. To me, the Nationals long term, uh, when you talk about whether it's good for them long term, you're not really talking about this year, next year or the year after. To me, they're in a really, really good position. And I would I would have liked to see them do something uh, that would have set them up long term, um, you know, beyond that. And so to me, it kind of feels like a missed opportunity. Mm hmm. I would have maybe recommended that they do something, but I actually like that they didn't. I think as I think I said at the time that however much sense it might make for them to make a trade, I hoped that they wouldn't, just because I kind of enjoy the, the super rotation, or at least the idea of it, because in practice it never really pans out, guys get hurt, other guys just have weird bad seasons, and it's not the just juggernaut that you think it's going to be when you look at the depth chart and from top to bottom, it's a really good pitcher every day. But the Mets and the Nationals both have sort of sort of super rotations, or at least rotations that go 
beyond five deep uh, and without a big drop-off in quality. So I'm hoping that if both of those stay intact, and those are both rotations for the same reason that people expected there to be a trade from at some point this winter, and there hasn't been, but if they both make it to opening day intact, then maybe one of them will actually pan out into a super rotation that will be fun to watch. The first of all, the Mets are not a super rotation. <laughs> I, I, the Mets are a good rotation with like young players. The Mets could develop into a super rotation in time, but they are not. Let's not. Let's not throw super rotation around like this. <laughs> there have been like six super rotations in our lifetimes, and the Mets ain't one. Okay, so shut up. <laughs> okay. Second, second. Here's my question to you: mm-hmm. Are the Nationals better in twenty? Are the Nationals better in 2018 uh, than they would have been if they hadn't signed Scherzer, do you think? I mean, obviously, Scherzer will probably be better than the non-player that they have not signed right now. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. the state of the Nationals in 2018 with that commitment and that pitcher, do you think it makes them better or worse for 2018? Hmm. I guess I'd say worse, just because between now and then, there would be other opportunities to add pitchers who maybe would be at a better point in their career, more favorable point in their career for for not more money. So yeah, that's what I think, and and that's kind of what I mean. I mean, there's 2018 is the median, you know, the middle year. There's four, three years after that, and and I mean, I I always like it when teams get good players. That's always fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that they should feel ashamed of themselves or anything like that. But uh, to me, it um, it takes a a team that's already really good and makes them a little better now, and then takes a team that I'm not sure about, but probably is going to have a lot of holes three years from now, and um, makes it a little worse for them. And so that's all. Mm-hmm. Okay, question from Brian. In light of today's developments, specifically the Cubs' big three prospects homering back-to-back-to-back, and Marcus Stroman's ACL tear. I have a hypothetical question. Imagine the baseball gods smiled down on you and offered the choice of either flawless scouting, for instance, knowing a player's true ability after an afternoon of close observation, or flawless training that would prevent all non-contact injuries. For instance, this hypothetical would prevent a pitcher's UCL from tearing, but would not have prevented Giancarlo Stanton's fractured jaw. The ability would last for a finite period of time. Is one of those abilities more valuable to a team? Does it matter if the interval is one year, five years, or ten years? Is the choice dependent on the team you work for? So I think I don't know whether I, the scouting ability extends into the future. I don't know whether the flawless scouting lets you see exactly what the player is going to become or lets you see exactly what the player can do right now. That might I'm gonna change say, things. I'm going to say... I'm I'm just going to declare that the finiteness of this is until you're no longer GM. <laughs> okay. That, that it just as long as you're the GM of the team, you can have one of these. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not remotely close. I take the training. I, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think that like if I had to guess, I would guess it's like by a factor of three. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, even if this. Even if the flawless scouting extends to players of any age and extends into the future, I mean, if it if it allows you to flawlessly scout future outcomes as well as present performance, so that you could just draft incredibly efficiently and 
promote prospects at the right time and trade for other teams' undervalued prospects and trade your own overvalued prospects. And no one would know that you have this ability. Maybe they would catch on eventually when you never made a bad move. But for a time, you could prey on everyone. You could just raid every system and trade your guys that aren't going to be as good uh, as the, the market thinks they're going to be and oh, raid yeah, every was, other team's system. Yeah. I, I mean, I it's possible it, but, that, that Brian is not is is not uh using this definition of the flawless scouting but if it's just flawless if, present scouting that's not all that valuable i mean it's, it's no, good you're but... right if 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 it's flawless like if it's actually flawless like to the point where you can just go down the like you can get the 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 i mean if you get every good pick in the draft mm-hmm. like the, the if you had mike napoli in the 16th round and you just you knew that Mike Napoli was the one guy in the 16th round. Like if you could get all of those guys mm-hmm. without any with total omniscience, then yeah, sure. I think I'm wrong. Okay, and yeah, uh, and and you wouldn't be able to predict luck. Obviously, guys would still have fluky, good or bad seasons. You'd only know their their true talent, and you wouldn't be able to predict the the kind of contact injuries that we're talking about. So that could still hurt you. But yeah, it would be a, a huge advantage to be able to see what every player would become so the i remember the power glove yes <laughs> right the power glove i never had the power glove neither did but, i oh you didn't okay no. i assumed you you would have so no the, as i understood it, the power glove i had the duck games, hunt gun you had the duck hunt gun mm-hmm. well that that just that's like saying that you <laughs> had the nintendo it came with the nintendo <laughs> like did you also have a controller I did have a controller. Was there a cord going from the console to the <laughs> yep. to the wall? No wireless in those days. Uh, Didn't even so, have the arcade controller. So my my understanding is that the power glove sometimes would make you invincible. You could just run through the entire game without dying, and you were unbeatable. But sometimes it would just give you a, a you know like a strong benefit, like in Tyson's Punch Out. It would give you unlimited stars, so you could throw the power star punch as many times as you want, but that's not the same as being invincible. You could still very easily lose to Tyson with unlimited stars. And um, so this question, and really anything, like if this question is, uh, says flawless, and I don't really know how far to take that. Does it mean Mm -hmm. that I am godlike, or does it just mean that I have a 35% edge over my competition? Um, And in real life, if if you were to take this to real life, it would just be a matter of prioritizing one over the other. Uh, and then you're probably talking about maybe three to five percent, and those are all sort of different questions. So it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think realistically, using real life, uh, the stakes that real life teams are are operating on the margins. You, I would rather have a uh, team that could draft ten percent better for health than ten percent better for scouting than the median. And I think that that's where I would say that it would be uh, a significant difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, Eric wants to know which team's Pakoda projected record we disagree with the most. Well, the Royals, we, mm. I, me and Rob McCune spent two hours <laughs> going over just to make sure that we had not done something wrong. Yeah. Uh, so the Royals is the one that I most wanted to see change. <laughs> 72 you and know? 90. Like I just, we just kept running it, hoping <laughs> it would change. And... I don't. I'm not that high on the Royals, but uh, I would have liked to see something like seventy. Uh, I would have liked to see something like seventy-eight or seventy-nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I, that still would have raised people's eyebrows, but I would have, I would have maybe said, yeah, yeah, no, that seems, that seems rational and realistic to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can see why it gets to 72. I really can't, but I, I also see why people think it's bananas. Was there uh, something about it that, I mean, was there one point of departure in particular where you disagreed or where you were surprised that it said someone was worse than you thought or whatever? Um, well, it basically, uh, it's interesting because, um, uh, somebody else who has a projection system was talking to me about this and looked at it and said, well, well, it basically just looks like it hates every Royals hitter. And mm-hmm. you know, if you put it like that, that's fair. <laughs> like there's, there's no reason that any projection system should like any Royals hitter. There's basically, as Rob put it, who's their second best player. Alex Gordon is a great player, mm-hmm. but then who else is, who else has been good? in a uh in in regular season play um and the answer is really not not really anybody lately um but actually what if you really look at it the offense is a little bit below average but the real thing is that it really hates their pitching mm-hmm. and uh like guys like Guthrie and Vargas are just not going to get good projections and there's i, I mean that those guys are a big part of their rotation. There isn't a lot of, well, there's a little more now, but there isn't a ton of depth behind them. And uh, it just so happens that Ventura isn't a big uh, favorite of Pocotas. Mm-hmm. And when you take that out, it just sees the rotation being not really good. The way Davis projection we've talked about, I just, I don't think, I don't think any system currently can, can do justice to starters converting to relief at least the outliers like Davis. Mm-hmm. And so that it probably caught, there's probably a, a fair win and a half there that it's not giving them credit for. Um, but the bullpen is fine. The lineup is actually not that bad. The, the lineup projects to have about the same uh, cumulative warp as the Tigers does. And so uh, it looks with raw numbers, it looks like they hate their hitters, but they don't really hate them that much. It's mostly the pitching. That they hate, and uh, you know Duffy had the bad peripherals and was completely absent in 2013. So you could see why a projection system wouldn't like him. Uh, Guthrie's not very good. Vargas is he's fine, uh, and um, and it you know it didn't like Ventura. And when you don't like Ventura, it looks like a terrible rotation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to find another projection here that that strikes you as off by the same amount. I mean. Like there are some that maybe seem a few games too high or low, or maybe the the Dodgers at 97 maybe seems a little high, just like the Dodgers last year seemed a little high, although they ended up winning 94. And I don't know, maybe the Rays at 86 seems a little high, even yeah. though I probably like the Rays more than the the Vegas odds, which are like total long shots. But but 86 seems seems a little optimistic, and I don't know, it's it's tempting to just reflexively recoil against the Orioles projection of 78 wins just after the last few years of the Orioles being under projected and, or, or at least exceeding their, their projections for one reason or another. But you look at the Orioles and it, it, I guess, I don't know, maybe that's the one, but you kind of have to, to buy into certain, luck-based things to to think that they are really as good as they were last year but i i guess orioles at 78 does seem a little light 
just given the, the guys they're getting back and maybe more Gossman and uh, the rotation is, I don't think it's as good as it was last year, but it's not awful anywhere really. So maybe I'll take the Orioles. Not that I'm super high on the Orioles, but I, I don't have a problem with the Orioles. I, uh, maybe a little, but I, uh, I think the White Sox would be my second one. 78. I, 78. To me, that feels like, they feel like a good team to me. They feel like a good team to me. <laughs> Going with their gut. To me. Jeez. <laughs> they are a good team. They have good players. They have good, they have good pitching. They fixed, they, I mean, they fixed the, the problems and the bullpen. They have good players. They're, I mean, they're, they have some very bad players, too. <laughs> yes, they do. They have some very bad position players. Yeah. All right. Play index? Sure. So, um, my favorite, would you have a favorite split? Favorite split? Like a weird one? I mean, I... No, not, not a specific example of one player's split, mm. but like, do you have a, if you go to a guy's split page, do you have a favorite thing to look at for any reason huh. whatsoever? I mean, the most useful one is always platoons, right? All right. So, so is that, I is suppose that's, that's my favorite. It's not very creative, but it's the, the one that is of the most analytical use, probably. When I'm uh, my favorite split is after O2 for particularly for pitchers. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun and one. When I when I'm sort of drawing a blank on what to write for a guy's comment in a BP annual and I'm I'm just sort of uh, I I find my way into the split section of the world and and I'm looking for something interesting. I don't often use it, but I often find, like I you, I go to the after O2 count to jumpstart my creativity. And after O2 count um creates some some really like it is the the most lopsided split i think of all of them i i mean if there was a split like what you hit on home runs that would be a bigger split but that i don't think they have that on baseball reference <laughs> uh so the, it is the most lop i think it's probably the most lopsided right there's no other split that so tilts the playing field in one direction you mean in terms of it being opposite for pitchers and hitters or no, I or mean just like the guy, different a from guy, your average stats. Yeah, different from your average stats. It's like a guy could get, you know give have an 800 OPS normally and then have like a 140 OPS after O2. Like after O2, you're just so much different of a ball player, and so it creates these incredible facts. And so, like over the years, I've had some fun facts in my life that were after O2 fun facts. Like for instance, I always loved that in 2010. After O2 counts, Cliff Lee struck out 105 and walked one. <laughs> so like that, you get that. Like you get after O2 is the only place you ever see a 105 to one strikeout to walk ratio, right? Mm-hmm. And you get that Pedro Martinez in 2000 after O2 held batters to an 073, 088, 096 line. <laughs> Like a 184 OPS. That's the only time in the world you see a 184 OPS in in baseball's natural habitat. And um, so I was looking at some after O2 stats uh, on the play index split finder. And so I have a few of the o, uh, after O2 outliers of recent or non-recent example. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the... Uh, one of the king, the king of the O2 after O2 walk, uh-huh. is cur- currently Ubaldo Jimenez, <laughs> whose 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 walk rate 
after O2 is worse than the league average walk rate overall. <laughs> career? <laughs> Not career, unfortunately. Uh. <laughs> just, just last year. And so, of course, there's a... It was... All fun 12, facts lie, as you say. But yes. As you say, yeah. 12 out of 116 batters he faced walked. So a little bit higher than 10% of batters that he got to 0-2 on ended up walking. Steve Traxel once had a season in which he struck out 5.6 batters per nine after 0-2. Now, <laughs> 5.6 batters per nine, I mean, the nine is obviously an artificial grouping of, of batters based on how many outs he recorded. But if it had, if every bat, basically what it is is if, Steve Traxel lived in a world where every batter came up 0-2. He would have struck out 5.6 batters per nine that year, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, also good. Um, the uh, w since t 2000, I guess probably maybe 19, maybe 88. I can't remember. The all-time worst season uh, for 0-2 after 0-2 seems to be Hector Noesi, who allowed a 330, 354. 582 line uh, after 02. So uh, Miguel Cabrera's triple crown year, kind of. Mike Trout's career slash line uh, after 02 against Hector Noisy. Um, and Noisy, Noisy uh, for his career, is a 710 OPS allowed after 02, uh, which means that if you spotted him 02 for every batter, he would still be a worse pitcher than Aaron Crow. <laughs> Aaron Crow. Hmm. Aaron Crow is not very good. No. Worse than Hector Santiago. Worse than Chad Qualls. The king of O2 is Jose Fernandez, whose career, granted, his career is essentially one season, but his career line after O2 is even better than the Pedro one that I gave you. The Pedro one was Pedro's career best season. It was his career best season after O2 as well. Uh, there has maybe never been a better season by a pitcher in history. And uh, Fernandez, after 02, was even better than that. He has held batters to an 064, 073, 089 line, <laughs> which is a 162 OPS. Well, I'm going to error adjust that so that Pedro will still be better. <laughs> you will. I'm going to read your grant one to you. Oh, this is going to be so snarky. I, I, I wanted to see who had the. Which pitchers were most or least uh, affected by having an 0-2 head start? And it probably doesn't surprise you that it tends to be guys who are power pitchers or who have good strikeout pitches or put-away pitches. Uh, so like you um, Darvish's, for instance, you Darvish's OPS allowed after 0-2 is only 44% as high as his overall, which is like the ninth, high, uh, ninth lowest ratio, the ninth best or whatever with O2 relative to his normal. The top 10, Fernandez is number one, 30%. He basically sheds 70% of batter's uh, production uh, when he gets ahead O2. Then Tony Singrani is number two, which is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And partly it helps to be a fairly short career if you want to be the outlier on our leaderboard, and Tony Singrani's had a short career. But still, Singrani number two, Rex, and also, doesn't Singrani only throw fastballs? <laughs> well, slight exaggeration, but yes, he is known for, for that. I think uh, something like 70% or three-quarters of the time this season. Wouldn't you think that it'd be the guys with a with a killer breaking pitch that would be better on after 0-2? Because they'd get that punch out? Yeah, you'd think. You'd think. 
All right, number three, Rex Brothers. Number four, Nick Vincent. Number five, Zach Britton. Uh, number six, Chase Anderson. Number seven, Pedro Strope. Eight, Dellen Batances. Nine, you Darvish. Ten, Kenley Jansen. Eleven, Gene Machi. And twelve, Matt Shoemaker. All right, the other side, uh, Noisy is the worst with O2. Eight, he only sheds 12% of batter's production when he gets ahead of O2. Hmm. Uh, he is 88% as bad as Hector Noisy when... <laughs> when he gets ahead of 2 uh, Jake Odorizzi is kind of an odd one because it's mostly bad pitchers at the bottom, but Odorizzi's good, um, and he's the third worst. Uh, Fernando Rodney in his career, these are all career, by the way, is sixth worst, which is surprising to me, although having seen Fernando Rodney always seem to have better stuff than the strikeout suggested. Um, and Kevin Gossman, number 10, is an odd one, too. But there he is. So those are the outliers. But um, but really, I just wanted to get to Rob Nen, who had the, the single greatest season ever for an after O2 pitcher. And it came in 2000. So as long as you're era adjusting, uh, this will uh, you will you he is Lindbergh proof because <laughs> he pitched in the era mm-hmm. that you adjust to. And in in 2000, he faced 65 batters with an 0-2 count after an 0-2 count. Those 65 batters, 45 struck out, none walked, and one got a hit, a single. Hmm. And so... <laughs> Pretty good. 65 batters, and cumulatively, they hit 0-16, He held them to a 31 OPS. A 31! <laughs> a wow. 31, Ben! Huh. Oh. 45 strikeouts by I'm gonna adjust it for ballpark. I'm gonna adjust <laughs> it for for first time through the order, and <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get him to I'm gonna adjust it for catcher. Maybe we're we'll, gonna get it above Pedro somehow. If you'd asked me who had the greatest relief season in history uh, before Kimbrel, I would have said Gagne. I would have said Eckersley, and I would have said that year from Rob Nen. And the numbers don't really support me, but I was just a kid then watching him with that slider and that fastball, and it was incredible. Mm -hmm. All right, good play index. Coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription at baseballreference.com. All right, question from Mike. This is kind of an old one. I've been starring it and saving it for a while hoping i'd come up with a good answer i don't think i have but it's a good question so i will deploy it now mike wants to know if we had to choose any year in baseball history that we could have a baseball podcast or widely read blog what would it be he basically wants to know what what year we would want to cover so covering the dimaggio hit streak or ted williams 400 season of 1941 the strike season for analysis on the gap between management and labor and how baseball could fix itself. The steroid era for all its interpretation and implications. I'm not asking this as what is your favorite season of all time, but more so what provides the best food for your thought as analysts? What aspects of the game get your juices going as writers and thinkers? What season would provide the most juice? And that's, it, it, I mean, it's, 40, 47. Jackie Robinson. Well, right. But, I, I mean, it kind of depends what sort of writer you are, right? Like, if we 
if we were writing during the time when integration was going on, we would presumably be be writing about that. That would be the hot topic of the day. And we would do that, but is that the kind of writing that we want to do, right? Like do we I mean if you're a if you're a labor writer, you would want to cover the site's decision and unionizing and and free agency. Or if you write about social issues, you would want to write about integration. And of course, you know, everyone dabbles in everything, but we kind of gravitate toward, you know, the sort of statistical stuff. And in that sense, there's no better era than now. I don't know whether whether Mike is presuming that we have the same information in any era that we have now. So we would just have all the stats that we have and we would you know, have MLB TV or whatever, because if, if you actually had to to cover the game the way that writers at those times covered the game, I would not choose any era, I don't think, because I like being able to sit in my office and watch MLB TV and not go anywhere and have to pay attention to every pitch and get quotes on everything or else you miss it and it's gone forever and you can never watch it again. That sounds awful and difficult, and I wouldn't want to do it. So I guess for the, the kind of writing that we do now, is there a is there an era that would be the most interesting? I mean, like, like if you could write about, um, I don't know, if you could write about the kind of the transition between dead ball and live ball, where, you know, Babe Ruth was hitting a lot of home runs and everyone else was still not swinging for the fences and you would have hot takes about how it it's a corruption of the game to try to hit home runs over the fence and you could use numbers to show how much more valuable it was when you did that, that sort of thing. Maybe big changes like that would be ripe sources for, for analysis, fodder for analysis. Or, yeah, you could say that that maybe you would just want to, to cover... Uh, like, if you could cover Bill Veck when he was integrating the American League and signing Satchel Page and doing that kind of thing, that would be great. I'd have loved to have covered him. But I don't know if there's a in, most interesting era, analytically speaking. Is there one that that you could pick out that would be the most interesting to apply modern analysis to in real time? Well, I, I, I think that the... Personally, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but I think that the early 80s, early to mid 80s, would be a fun time to cover. Partly, yeah. partly for the uh, the extreme styles of play that some teams were playing. Mm-hmm. Partly for the cocaine, <laughs> and and partly just because I feel like that's this transition where, um, I mean, you know, I set my modern era in 1988, mm-hmm. and those were the transition years where uh, we were getting. I think in a way that didn't exist before, we were getting really large athletes and like closer to like true modern elite athletes, but they didn't quite have the grace yet. There was something clunky and not yet refined about them. So I feel like for 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 giffing, <laughs> uh-huh. it was it was probably a very rich era. Like the, I feel like there were a, like that was just really the uh, that was the era of people running through walls, you know of of people like of of funny slides and uh bloopers that was probably the the high point for bloopers in my opinion uh-huh 
Yeah, uh, and guys running a lot, huge stolen base totals, and more contact than there is today. There, there's a lot of fondness for that era, and I've never known how much of it is just the fact that, I don't know, the, the high-profile baseball writers of today came of age during that time, and so naturally they are fond of that era, as every generation is fond of the era that it grew up watching. Like There was almost a a baseball prospectus book about the decade of the 80s that was being worked on at one point, and that kind of made sense because everyone at BP at the time kind of grew up watching baseball in the 80s and reading Bill James at that time, and so that was the time that they remembered fondly from being kids and growing up with that style of play, but also as someone who was born then and didn't... And, thus wasn't watching baseball then it does sort of have an objective appeal yeah i don't i can't think of a reason to really choose any other there are the extremes but i get i mean the 20s would have been fun right yeah that's kind of what i'm i'm thinking like i was looking at walter johnson uh today for a uh, a play index that did not come together but one of the things that struck me about walter johnson that i didn't really i, I guess i had never really realized or thought about it this way but Walter Johnson, uh, when he was 22, led the league in FIP. Not that anybody knew this, mm-hmm. but led the league in FIP with a 1.39 FIP. And then when he was 37, he also led the league in FIP with a 3.68 FIP. Uh-huh. Like, basically, league offense tripled in one guy's career, and he never stopped being the best in the game during that time. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a fascinating thing to see, to see some guys, almost like silent movies, right, going to talkies, to see some guys just continue to dominate through the transition. I assume a lot of guys that for some reason or another didn't dominate through the transition. And just to kind of see like all the numbers get blown up uh, and re- you know, re- reset with new numbers would be interesting. I mean, certainly just to see, like I've said here before, Babe Ruth was it it doesn't seem like it i still kind of feel like it's a hoax uh because it doesn't really make sense that like what he did you know especially because he's a big fat guy (laughs) and and so to see that transition would be interesting statistically as well as yeah just to watch that was also a much better era for scouting stories that right would have some appeal i mean if you were if you were a writer i mean you could you could probably even have heard about players before the teams did at that time. There was such a such a rudimentary scouting network, and guys were just not being found. You could have gotten a tip and and found some hot prospect before teams even heard about him, or there are just constantly stories about about guys just you know owners sending train tickets to someone that someone tipped them off would be good, and they could just show up and try out and be amazing and so there were constantly stories like that and you'd also get you know you'd get like the beginning of branch ricky and farm systems and that would be interesting and so yeah that would that'd probably be a pretty good time all right all right resolved the 20s okay good all right so uh that's enough probably for today one quick thing lillian in hanover germany wanted to know what stadium you would pick if you could name a stadium after you or your company? Do you have a quick answer for that? I'm assuming that that 
the standard is that you would want to get the most bang for your buck, right? So if you if you could get the Yankees to surrender naming rights to Yankee Stadium, that would probably be the most lucrative naming contract, but you'd have to pay the most. So I, I guess we're looking for a market inefficiency in stadium naming rights. Well, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to tarnish a stadium I loved, um, <laughs> and and I don't like attention too much. So I probably would just go. I probably would like name. I guess I would name the Brewers Park Miller Park. <laughs> you don't want to be intrusive. You would just change exactly. change the mascot. To I might put who a really. Like I might put a really small S, like a tiny, tiny, tiny S, in front of Miller Park. So it'd be like S Miller Park. Very tiny S. Uh-huh. <laughs> Lillian's idea was to just pick one of the extreme parks, which probably makes sense. Like if you could rename Coors Field or Petco Park or something, you would, you'd probably get more mentions per per dollar than you would otherwise. At least you'd get more mentions than the the team quality or the market size oh, right. would dictate. Because there's no right, there's no like there's no uh, Dodger Stadium effect, but there is a Coors Field effect. Yeah, they don't talk about. They talk about Coors Field hangovers and uh-huh. things like that. And yeah, they so don't it would talk be about. constantly the Lindbergh effect. You get good bang for your buck that way. Good point. Okay, all right, Stick that's in, it. Sticking with my joke, though. <laughs> good one. Somehow we got two questions today, which we are not going to answer, about about baseball and volleyball and what would happen if baseball players rotated positions like volleyball players which baffles me because we got this question on May 28th, 2013, and we answered it in episode 212, an email show. And then almost two years went by, year and a half went by, no one asked this question. On the same day, two people asked almost exactly the same question again. Is that is there something in the air? Is volleyball in the news? I don't uh, know how that would happen. Random events cluster in ways that appear non-random. That's true. All right, so that is it for today. We have a team preview podcast tomorrow. It's the Tigers, so that's what we'll be doing. You can send us emails for next week's show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Rate, review, subscribe to the show on iTunes, and as we have already asked you to, support the sponsor, the Baseball Reference Play Index. Use the coupon code BP. We'll be back tomorrow.